Hey everyone, we've got David Pakman here on the show today. You guys may recognize him from the David Pakman show where he talks about mostly politics. Very smart, uh, talented man. He started out in radio in 2005 and he was one of the youngest people to be having a nationally syndicated radio show. And today we talked a lot about what's happening around the world with COVID, with the elections. Um, we get into a little bit about the potential predictions of what could happen around the world with Joe Biden now becoming the president. Uh, talk a little bit about the business around independent journalism as well and how David has been able to adjust from working in radio to now being able to monetize his platform using things like YouTube, Facebook, all of these different things. So if you guys are in the media industry, uh, if you guys are interested in kind of getting a much more talented perspective, not on my end, of course, on David's end, in terms of what's happening around uh, politics and what some, some of the opinions that he has and predictions he has in the world of uh, post-COVID, have a listen. I think you'll really enjoy this short but great conversation with David Pakman. All right, guys. Welcome back to a, another episode of Growth Minds. David, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So I know uh, just from brief research that you were born in Buenos Aires, Argentina. I actually spent about six to seven months there about four to five years ago. What was it like when you first moved there? I know how crazy it's gotten recently with inflation and all these I guess, corruption that's been happening with the government. Did you get to experience any of that when you were born there? No, I was five when we moved to the U.S. So, I mean, I knew we were moving because the economy was having, um, you know, it was uh, unstable and there were better work opportunities for my parents in the U.S. So I, I knew that. But at five, you know, your understanding of um, economics beyond that is is a little is is pretty limited. Um, but I've I've stayed in touch and have family there and visit regularly. So I've I've of course kept up with the news and the politics of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, how do you? What's your opinion of all the things that are happening? I mean, even in recent events, I, I remember five years ago where a dollar would be worth I think around eight dollars in the blue market. They've got the blue peso and the or the black market, and you could double that with the black market. By going into you know the main streets of Buenos Aires, and all of these guys would be yelling like "Cambio, Cambio, Cambio," and you go into this like narrow alleyway, and it's still like the most sketchy thing you'll ever do. But you can double your money almost. And now I'm noticing that the currency of one dollar is worth like eighty pesos. Uh, it's just crazy what's happening. Have you looked into any of the uh, findings, and what, what are your opinions of all these things that are happening? Yeah, I mean, it's it goes back a very long time. And it's a very, you know, the currency situation there is super complicated. But at the same time that there's been huge currency devaluation, there's also major inflation. So even though, you know, one US dollar gets you more pesos at this point, it's not totally clear that it actually buys you more stuff because inflation um, has been rising in parallel with 
um, the currency devaluation. So th there may be some advantage with the U.S. dollar at this point, but it's not dramatic. You know, a lot of times people hear, wow, now it's 80 to 1 or 140 to 1 and it used to be 10 to 1. You must be able to go with dollars and, and it's just like li living like a king. But because of the inflation that there's been in pesos as well, um, it's, it's not quite so clear. But I don't know what the path out is. And the assessments of what's going on are, are highly partisan. And you have some who say that the, the reason why there is this financial trouble is merely because of um, neoliberalism, globalization, and bad deals offered by uh, the IMF, and um, that, that it's that simple. Uh, there's others who place the blame squarely on Argentinian governments, and you know the truth is usually a combination of the two over decades. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame just given how beautiful the culture is there, and it, it's such a... a interesting nation that presents so many unique opportunities of you know economic prosperity and and the history that's been there for so long and it's 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 a real shame for me to you know even have friends there and i'm sure you've, you obviously have family there um you know it's 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 surprising that all these things are happening i mean even with the u.s you're getting the government to print out so much money i mean do you have your do you have any thoughts in terms of how even our own dollars are going to be inflated in the next couple of years. I don't know if there's a delay in these kind of things. Uh, well, increasingly, you know, as we've learned more about, um, you know, by in printing money at this point is such a misnomer because really what we're talking about is computer computer transactions, uh, and often, you know, the the, the phrase printing money creates this inflationary idea in our minds of presses just running off dollars and dollars when of course that's that's not what's happening anymore um, but our understanding of modern monetary theory at this point and the work of people like Pavlina Cherneva um, and Stephanie Kelton and, and others have really give us an understanding that, um, that there does not have to be this inflationary spiral when you increase the money supply uh, as long as it's being done thoughtfully and um, uh, rationally and, and for economically stimulative reasons. So I am not surprised uh, that we have not seen the sort of inflationary death spiral that, that supply side economics supporters or believers, I guess I would call them, predicted, you know, as we saw you, you might remember, you might not. Um, Donald Trump did run on on getting us a surplus. He ran on paying off the debt altogether within one term. Obviously, he's increased the deficit incredibly, and we actually have, have seen one of the largest increases. Um, and that certainly is a broken campaign promise. But inflation has has remained relatively modest, and I think it just further confirms the ideas of those who have been talking about this for for a decade now. Um, and so, no, I'm not surprised we've not seen this inflationary explosion. What's the foundation behind that logic? Uh, I mean, from, from what I, is it mostly because when you're printing out money, there hasn't been a lot of on the demand side because there's a shutdown and there's not a lot of circulation happening? Could you kind of give us a brief overview why uh, of the reasoning for that? Yeah, I mean, I think that... It requires a sort of readjustment of the of the framework, so to speak. The the sort of simple understanding often is, if you just have more of something, it's worth less. It's like a very very rudimentary idea, right? Like if there's just way more dollars in an economy of X size, by by definition, each dollar has to be sort of worth less, which means prices are going to go up because you need more dollars in order to end up 
with a sort of a, um, a Pareto amount of, of value is the idea. Um, but of course, in an economy that's so complex, it doesn't really work that way. I mean, just to think through sort of one example, if you think about, quote, printing money or essentially subsidizing health insurance, get everybody health insurance, and the government just pays for it and takes on the debt that's associated with that, you then have to look at the other side of the ledger, right? So if people uh, are overall healthier because they have access to health care, that makes them more productive, which means they earn more wages and produce more stuff, which increases government revenue. So you always have to think about the other side of the ledger, if that makes sense. Hmm. Interesting. Did you study economics or what did you study back in university? Yeah, my undergraduate degree is in economics and communication. And then in graduate school, I did an MBA and it was also focused on economics. Okay, interesting. I studied economics and I didn't know any of that stuff. So I think one of us paid attention in this table here. Well, what's interesting is many, many uh, traditional economics departments at universities do not teach anything other than standard neoclassical economics. So you're taught supply and demand, you're taught you know, efficient markets and rational actors, and, and then that's where it stops. And now we have a much better understanding through the work of behavioral economics that there's a whole other layer, right? The neoclassical is a fine base to understand in a vacuum how might economics work. Mm. But we know that that's not economics in the real world. So now you need this uh, added layer of behavioral econ. And fortunately now, there are more and more economics departments that are teaching it. When I was in school, they were not, almost nobody was teaching that stuff. Sure, yeah. I mean, I I remember, um, you know, obviously doing micro and and macro at at like the fundamental level. And now that I'm researching a little bit more about the economy and how whatever, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of smart people talking about how almost useless macroeconomics is versus microeconomics in terms of helping us make better decisions. Uh, macro being like what the, I guess, the government and, and nations would use. Micro being, I guess, more businesses. Would that be more correct? More, more on the lower level, I guess? I think you can certainly generalize and say micro deals more with the economics of a firm or an industry, whereas macro deals more with the economics of a country or even even the world. I don't think that's a bad framework. Yeah. And I guess the idea is that for macro, it's hard to falsify information that comes from like a macro perspective. So it's not, um, I guess the idea is like micro is much more specific and much more accurate information. Um I don't know if you have any thoughts around that. I mean, I think the, the, the area where traditional macroeconomic theory falls short is that it doesn't really account for the reality of, um, of foreign policy, the reality of geopolitics in many ways. It's, it's sort of, again, again, it's a good base to understand how could, if, if, all, if we had perfect information and politics weren't a factor and psychology weren't a factor, how, how could... Uh, economic theory work but then you have to sort of add the real world into it and as you're sort of pointing out that dramatically changes our understanding sure sure uh, i want to get a bit into your story you you had a uh, nationally syndicated show at the age of 21 which is the youngest i think at that point which puts a lot of pressure on someone that's just out of college or you were maybe in your last year of college to have that kind of show uh, what were some of the things that you were talking about initially when you first started on? 
It's basically been a show focused on U.S. and international politics since the beginning. So obviously what was going on at the time was very different, but the focus of the show um, hasn't changed dramatically. I mean, I think over time we do more and less econ, more and less tech, uh, more and less energy type uh, stories. But the, the show, the idea of the show has been pretty similar since the beginning. And what's interesting is that since the show has just... You know, I kind of do the same thing. I go and sit in front of a microphone and a camera and, and give my thoughts. So it feels like, in a sense, it's the exact same show, although obviously the audience size has changed dramatically and you know our staffing levels and and the, the, the size of what we're doing as a business has changed a hundredfold. Um, but it still sort of just feels... I never felt the pressure because it always just felt like it's just, I'm just doing the show today and each day it's growing a little bit. It never feels like, wow, now... Now it's a really different thing right right i guess you're really just pr- focusing on the the process of improving and just churning out content and i imagine you're, you're also getting better as a as a not only as an interviewer but someone that is able to analyze information that's happening and, and provide it in a more concise way for your audience as as that scales um i mean going back to what the area was in terms of the I guess radio was the thing that you were doing despite being nationally syndicated it was nowhere near the scope and the flat uh, I guess distribution that we have here today what are some of the things that you've had to adjust in terms of perhaps the the way you were talking to your audience or even the way the business is run because of the fact that you're now stepping into an area where you're having that direct relationship with your with your audience. Yeah, I mean it's it, the it's incredible how at this point I I, I would say ninety nine percent, but really it's a hundred percent of our revenue. No, I mean I guess ninety nine percent is is accurate. Ninety nine percent of our revenue is coming from the online platforms. It's coming from the podcast, the YouTube channel, live streaming, Twitch and Facebook, ad deals, brand deals, partner deals. Um, Whereas initially, you know, we were selling radio spots. We were selling radio advertising. Mm -hmm. And the radio component, the TV component, was much more important revenue-wise. And it, it just basically remained level and everything else increased so much that we've we, we essentially at this point consider the radio show and the TV show something we do at our cost simply to continue providing a, a, a public independent service essentially an independent radio show uh, but it's not revenue generating anymore which is amazing because you know we I still have friends in radio mm. that are still tied to this model of the 30 second and the 60 second spot and you know the ratings and and that type of thing and i'm so glad to be out of it because i hated it i really didn't like that and um the world just opened up as high-speed internet became more ubiquitous these platforms like youtube twitch and podcasting grew it's it's just been fantastic for us i mean the show wouldn't be what we wouldn't have full-time employees and this likely wouldn't be my full-time job we wouldn't have investors if we were just a community radio show it's been because of the online platform Gotcha, gotcha. And now it's, it's as you mentioned, it's 99% there. And, and is the radio show that you guys are doing then, is that just something, is that exclusive content or are you guys filming the content and just distributing it to the radio as well? Yeah, it's all the same show. So our hour podcast 
goes out as an audio podcast. It goes out as an hour radio show. It goes out as an hour TV show to free speech TV on DirecTV and Dish. It gets chopped up into YouTube clips. So it's all the same uh, content distributed on different platforms. Right, right. And you made the decision to go independent. Um, and what's like the concrete definition of that? Does that just mean that you don't have any sponsors on the show that could potentially deteriorate you from a message that a sponsor could could influence you on? And I guess what is the real definition of like independent media in your, in your world? There's no set definition, but it does not have to do with not having sponsors. We have sponsors. We do we do ad sales, but uh, I own the show, and I am both the host and also the editor in chief. So, whereas mm-hmm. if you do a radio show uh, for a clear channel station, or you do a TV show on MSNBC, you have bosses. There are people who decide you get hired for another year or you don't, and and they have, often have editorial control. Um, uh, there's, there's, we don't have any of that. In other words, I own the company that produces the show and, and have total control over that. We don't have any corporate um, media outlet or entity that is in any way funding or influencing the show. We have advertisers. I never talk to them. Our ad sales guy talks to them. And right. you know, nobody's ever imposed any, anything uh, that I should or shouldn't say. Uh, but it's really about the ownership structure is, is independent. Gotcha, gotcha. And one of the things I love about your show is the diversity of the guests that you have. You've got musicians to people in politics, and even within politics, you've got the left wing, you've got the right wing people, you've got the, I guess you would say, like the homophobic, the Islamophobic. You're really uh, giving people the opportunity to have a conversation to uh, really in all of these different fields. What was the decision process there? I mean, obviously, there's some risk involved, especially in the in the culture that we live here today, which we'll get into, um, is that just been like a day one thing? You wanted to open the floor to having a conversation, whether you agree with them or not, to pretty much anyone? It's not about giving any idea, any crazy idea or extremist a platform. And in right. fact, I think that sometimes you see irresponsible platforming of dangerous ideas. My thought is, I want to responsibly platform and be prepared to challenge bad ideas that I worry will spread. So, you know, some obscure conspiracy theorist that has some really nuanced conspiracy theory that nobody's paying any attention to and is having no impact, I don't care to interview them. That's not interesting to me. If there are uh, extremist movements that are actually pulling people in, mm. I want to have them on to challenge them. And I think that that's really important. You, 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 when I see sometimes on corporate media, you will see extremists platformed and not challenged. And I don't think that that's a useful thing. I don't think that that's useful to society. Uh, and so my goal is, and I achieve it only to, you know, sometimes to differing degrees, depending on the guest is if I'm going to bring these uh, guests on with horrible, disgusting ideas, I want to make sure that I'm prepared to challenge it Mm. and to leave the audience overall uh, understanding that these are bad ideas, these are ideas that I've been able to debunk, and and I call that responsible platforming. Yeah, it is is like a confusing line because I think people can get outraged into thinking that you're giving people a platform despite... Um, really the objective for you is to try to get the most honest and, and concrete information uh, and, and ideally to, to be able to uh, have like a more constructive conversation around 
the people that you're bringing on, whether you agree with them or not. It's, it, it is a fine line, especially with how the Reddit worlds work and all of these things that are able to spread online. Uh, have you just learned to deal with the, with, the, with the potential hate that comes in the other, other direction? Yeah, I mean, no matter what I do, a lot of people hate it. And you're more likely to hear from the people that dislike what you do than the, than you are to hear from the people that like what you do. So you do get used to that. And any, any, I mean, listen, if we change our theme song, I will get hate for a month from people who say the old theme song was better. Right. If I have a guest on, I will get emails from people who say there was no point to having that guest on because they didn't say anything interesting or it was irresponsible to have that guest on because they were so hateful and provocative. And ultimately, you know, you have to develop a confidence that uh, you can make these decisions and that there will always be, when your audience gets to a certain size, there will always be people that, that take issue with what you're doing. Um, but developing kind of a confidence and an understanding of what, what is best for me to do on the show, regardless of what the feedback is going to be. And how have you, you think, developed that ability to not care what other people think? Because it's, it's a relatively hard thing for someone that is, uh, I guess, just a regular Joe that is facing this thing almost on a daily basis, yet you seem to have kind of navigated your way through. You're almost like riding the wave and you're, on, you're kind of enjoying the movement despite what's happening, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you ever, I, I, I have never gotten to the point where I don't care at all. I mean, if I, you know, if we do something and emails start pouring in about people furious thinking I'm the dumbest person for having said this or that or the other thing, to say it has no effect, it would be a lie. But I think you're just regularly working on it and understanding that you're only ever hearing from a tiny slice of the audience. Like I've, I've never commented on a YouTube video and I've never written to any show I've ever watched, right? Mm -hmm. So I need to, so I always remind myself, most people I'm not hearing from. And the fact that the, you know, the like-dislike ratios tend to be good, the fact that the audience keeps growing, the fact that our paid membership keeps growing means most people do like what I'm doing. Right. And I think it's just contextualizing in that way and not letting yourself kind of be you want to pay attention to criticism of course but not be guided exclusively by it yeah for sure and if you truly believe and your audience believes what you're saying is 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 you know with good intention and it's to the correct uh, information as much as possible then then i imagine as your independent uh, membership grows and your sponsorship dollars is less your, your I guess your revenue is less reliant on sponsorships. You'll be able to, I guess that's the whole idea, right? That's really the fundamental change that's happened with the internet is that you're able to support it directly with consumers rather than sponsors. Um, I, I've seen like guys like Tim Ferriss uh, experiment. I guess Sam Harris does this really well. But is there a reason you think why podcasters still haven't been able to nail down the idea of independent memberships? and being able to get funded directly through consumers? Like, do you see that as the future? I see it as the present. I mean, we're doing that. And we've seen, you know, our membership program um, sometimes will almost double in a year. You know, it's it's really crazy. So, so I mean, it's, it's I think maybe the question of why some have not been able to do it at scale would require looking at 
how exactly they're doing it. And it may be more a problem of either the content. It may not be content everybody wants to support. That's, you know, you need to have content people want to support. You need to make it relatively easy for people to do that. Um, you need to make the value proposition clear. But um, I, I don't, you know, I guess I where I would disagree with, with the framing is I don't think it's the future. I think it's the present for shows that understand how to do it. And we've done it really successfully. Yeah, and I guess you guys see eventually the sponsorship becoming much less and the independent becoming the majority of your guys' revenue as you guys continue to grow? Not necessarily. I mean, my, my thought is always we want multiple revenue streams. And I don't, I have no interest in reducing any revenue stream if it's working well and it's not causing a problem. So for us, you know, we have a YouTube partnership and YouTube ad revenue. Uh, which even within it has three different sources of revenue, which is ad revenue, um, live stream revenue, and YouTube membership. So like even YouTube is subdivided into three revenue sure. sources. Uh, we've got Twitch. We have the Facebook ad program and Facebook membership, website memberships, um, direct sponsors, uh, sponsored content. Yeah. So I, my interest is less about reducing anything obviously we want to keep building the biggest business we can but but i want to be sort of i consider multiple revenue sources insurance against any one revenue source that could be cut and that's happened we've had mm. periods of time where youtube adpocalypse in 2017 we we were down about 95 percent youtube revenue we had a recent situation on facebook where for uh seven to ten days facebook revenue went to zero because of a piece of content that got flagged so i think of multiple revenue sources as insurance rather than as a as an opportunity to end revenue sources let's let's keep lifting them all yeah no that totally makes sense especially given the amount of demonetizations that could suddenly appear. I mean, censorship is a huge thing. I, I, we had Brett Weinstein on who had his page deleted by Facebook all of a sudden. I'm, I'm not sure if you um, heard about that. It was like, I guess it went fairly viral on Twitter around this idea. There's another guy, London Real, who was a, another podcaster, had all of his YouTube taken uh, videos down from a guest that he had LinkedIn as well, just completely deleted his page all of a sudden. I mean, it's crazy to think that people of such influence are just being able to be attacked this way. Probably a lot of it in like an automated manner, right? There's not necessarily a human that is overlooking this before it happens. It seems like it's almost a defense mechanism. So you have to contact a human on Facebook or YouTube to be able to get it taken back up. Yeah, um, I, I'm familiar. I know Brett Weinstein a little bit, and I, I heard something about a page that was deleted. The other people you mentioned, I, I, I've not heard of. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a there's a few different issues here. You know, there are a lot of folks who, for political reasons, want to say that the uh, takedowns are. Uh, partisan, politically partisan in nature. And I think that I, I've not yet been convinced of that. I mean, I'm on the left and I've dealt with demonetization issues on every platform. Uh, and a lot of folks want to say that that's really, that's only happening to the right. You know, the president, the guy who's the president for a few more days and his family um, have, have regularly claimed that uh, Twitter, for example, has an anti-conservative bias, but the left has, has suffered from, the, from this as well, and I, I'm an example of that. So the politically partisan piece, I think, is an open question. I do think that there are real questions about uh, what is the balance between a company that it legally gets to establish its terms of service and gets to enforce them and encouraging them to do it in the right way. 
Um, so, uh, you know, I've, I've defended the fact that right now there is really no legal regulatory infrastructure for the government to tell Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, you have to leave up X or Y content. Mm -hmm. Now, the exceptions to that would be if one of these platforms started removing or demonetizing content in a way that violated non-discrimination law. So, for example, if they were doing it in a way that disproportionately was was targeting um, you know, Jews or Asian Americans or whatever, that would be against the law. But beyond that, these companies have a legal right to create and enforce terms of service. So if we want to change that, then that's a really big question. And I've talked to Joe Rogan about this and others. Who gets to decide what the guidelines are? Does it change every time there's a new presidential administration? I mean, I think you're getting into complicated territory. And that's, you know, that's a whole conversation that, that is sort of in and of itself. Yeah. And it's, it's, it is very difficult to have. I mean, you've got Joe Biden, who is what, well into his 70s, Trump as well. And it's hard to say how much these presidents or these leaders even understand about technology. There was that famous live broadcasting where Mark Zuckerberg were ta was talking to all of these senators and these people in the, uh, in the cabinet, and they just had no idea. They were asking some of the most stupid questions around how Facebook and how social media works and how the algorithms work. And it's, it's hard to say like that even in this, you know, with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, if anything is really going to be done, that's going to be effective for something like this. So, you know, how would you impose something that uh, where we would be able to act in a, in a structured manner to actually enforce a more, I guess, structured law that makes sense for all these things? Well, I think the first thing is we have to we have to first prove that what we need is more law. I mean, it's it's just not clear to me. And I've heard a lot of different. Uh, the reason I'm kind of ambivalent about this is I've heard arguments of all different kinds to figure out, you know, first we have to figure out if just more regulation is what we need. And one of the hypocrisies that exists is that a lot of the folks that are saying we need regulation on social media are about removing regulations on just about every other business. And uh, they want to regulate Twitter, but not oil companies. And I think that's a real problem. And we've got to sort out, you know, if you, if we, if we or others are going to advocate for a really uh, harsh regulatory infrastructure for social media platforms, um, how can they at the same time, out of the other side of their mouth, say, remove regulations on industry, remove regulations on pollution, etc. I think first we have to figure out, is, is regulation and law the solution? And only then could we kind of go to the next step. It's not clear to me that it is. I'm not sure what the solution is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the idea is just to have a conversation about it on an ongoing basis to experiment with these different ideas. But yeah, I agree. I don't know if regulation, more regulation is necessarily the way it seems like it hasn't worked based on history and adding more to that would just kind of, you know, pour uh, fuel to the fire. I mean, w w that's one of the things that really excited me about a candidate like Andrew Yang is that he really understands the the effects of this and he, he comes from that world and um you know it, it would to me it only would seem to make sense that if joe biden was to bring him on as one of the leading people into his cabinet that can focus on something like this i, I don't know if you've heard of him doing anything around that 
Not specifically. It doesn't mean that there isn't a plan. You know, I think it's very early in the next couple of weeks, we're going to start learning some of the first cabinet appointments that Joe Biden is going to have. So no, I, I've not heard about anything specific. I think there's lots of great people um, with ideas on this. I do think that there is the fundamental difficulty of we don't know who's going to control the Senate when Joe Biden is sworn in, because right now it depends on two runoff Senate races in the state of Georgia. And, and I think that controlling or not controlling the Senate will have such a big impact that it's hard to even figure out the game plan until we know who will control the Senate starting in January. Yeah. Well, so now they have some news in terms of the Pfizer and, and, and Moderna obviously becoming a very transformative uh, vaccine. The, I don't, it's hard to say if there's going to be side effects to this, right? But there is a lot of progress that's being made, that's being distributed. What do you think happens in a post-COVID plus uh, Joe Biden world? What are some of the predictions that you think could happen, whether it's in cities, the healthcare system, education, taxes, anything like that? Do you have any thoughts there? So... A lot of those things just depend on the Senate. I mean, listen, if, if Democrats don't take the Senate, there's not going to be tax reform. If Democrats don't take the Senate, there's not going to be Joe Biden's health care reform. It's just not going to happen. Those things are too big. You might be able to do some things around the edges, but but though, that big reform isn't going to happen. I do think that once the vaccine starts um, uh, immunizing a larger portion of the population, and I think just to go back to, to one point, there are 40,000 people that have gotten each of the the two big vaccines so far. So we do know a lot right now about side effects. Okay. They're, they're relatively mild. Um, a vaccine wouldn't be approved until we, we have a lot of information about that. And almost 100,000 people have gotten these vac- vaccines in phase three trials. So that's looking pretty good. I, I think that by the traditional um, economic measures, the economy will do very well with Joe Biden combined with the vaccine being distributed. I think there's going to be a big desire for those who can do it financially to get back to travel. Uh, that's going to be a significant boost. Um, the healthcare industry, which this is not an opinion as to how it's organized. I think the healthcare industry is organized terribly, but a lot of the really profitable procedures like hip replacements, things that are necessary, but not emergencies will restart. And you're going to see a big boost there to GDP. Um, And in general, whether you say this is cause effect or not, the economy does tend to do better when the president is a Democrat. Stocks do a little bit better. Uh, job creation does a little bit better. GDP growth is a little bit better. So I think that assuming we get to a post-COVID recovery, um, I think that the economy is going to do well by traditional measures. Now, I do also think, and this is more a cultural, sociological, psychological thing, I think that after a year of this, or however long it is by the time it's all said and done, a lot of people are going to be hesitant to go back to life the way it was. And what I mean by that is, there's a lot of people who after the vaccine is out, and imagine the vaccine, you know, it really has long-term 90% immunity. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of people who will say, it just doesn't really feel that safe without a mask, because there's also flu, although the death rate is lower stomach bugs, et cetera. What, I, what I'm saying is I think that this will cause a little bit of PTSD in a lot of people and people will be more sensitive to the risks they were taking previously. And so I think it's going to be slow uh, in, in, in getting back to normal for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, that is the one good thing in that we are becoming a more sanitary society because you just can't imagine how filthy we were before all these things happened. 
it, it is the one good side of it. Obviously, there is the social uh, confinement of that even post-COVID. Uh, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are with, with cities in terms of how things would turn out. You've got Zoom that is taking over. You've got Starlink that's now going to be distributing faster internet speed globally. But you know, at the same time, you're the younger generation. We, we're still very social human beings. And people are saying that real estate will eventually become cheaper as people leave now within the next five or 10 years that people would eventually come back and cities will actually become more vibrant than ever despite remote work becoming a big thing. What are your opinions around that? Yeah, I think that it's very hard to predict five or 10 years out. I think it's super easy to say, listen, now that it's been proven, a lot of jobs can be done remotely. A lot of people don't need to live in New York to have a New York salary. You don't need to live in Boston to have a Boston salary. You can go elsewhere. Um, and that would lead us to think, well, if demand goes down for real estate in cities, then the, the cost will go down. But remember, where these folks are moving to, we'll see a rise in demand. So you might start to see people priced out of some of these smaller cities and towns. I, I think that then they might say, well, now that it's cheaper to go to New York, maybe now I'll go to New York and that will raise again. I think it's clear at this point that a lot of people want to live in cities. I think that humans return to a mean very, very uh, 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 predictably. And so all of the talk now about getting out of cities, people start to forget and then they say, wait, what, why did I ever want to leave? I think I like living in a city. So I don't think the moves will be drastic. I think you're talking about moves around the margins and I'd be shocked if it's like a real uh, upending of the way society is organized in terms of urban rural interesting yeah and, and i've heard in an article i forget the exact number maybe they haven't figured that out is that they're, they're now thinking about adding a tax for people that are also working remotely i don't know exactly how that's going to be done i guess it's mainly for people that are international i guess because most people would just be taxed by state anyways so these are people living in spain or maybe like bali that would get an additional tax for, for working remotely. Um, I don't know if you heard anything around that. I did, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't hear that it was only restricted to international. The idea that was being floated, I think, by Deutsche Bank was that it would be it would be done, you know, potentially domestically as well. I'm not in favor of it because the truth is that the, the really high earners will figure out ways to avoid it. Um, and uh, it's really only going to affect sort of mid-level workers. I think there's benefits uh, to the to, to society from working from home in a degree to a degree. You're lowering carbon emissions by avoiding people commuting back and forth. Um, you're potentially um, also just reducing cost of living for people, which leaves more money left over for injecting into the economy into small businesses. So I don't love the idea because I think it'll disproportionately kind of go to middle wage workers who earn enough that they can work from home like if certain jobs service sector jobs you have to be at the place where where the work is happening um and, and so I, I i'm not uh convinced that it's a great idea based on what i've read so far yeah yeah it doesn't seem there, there there's too much information out yet anyways but um well, well david i want to be respectful of your time and um really enjoy the conversation is there other places that apart from the places that we'll link that we should refer you to for people to check out more about what you're doing, the show, all these things. 
No, the, the hub is my website, davidpackman.com. And, you know, we're, we're everywhere. We're on YouTube. I'm on Twitter, Instagram. We're on Twitch. So it's very, very easy to find our content. Gotcha. And Twitch, is that something that you just do exclusive content on? Or, or are you just streaming that while you're doing your show as well? Twitch is, is uh, we do live streams on YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook that are separate from our daily show. Yeah. And we'll typically cover live political events like d- debates, conventions, and that type of thing. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on, David. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.